If there's one thing we can be certain of, it's that every child, every student is different. They learn differently, adapt differently, and often need specialized education plans in order to thrive. However, our education system doesn't always allow for this. And how do you know when a student requires a specialized program as opposed to just a bit more support? How do you know when a student is suffering, not just struggling? Welcome to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the academic challenges that students struggling with anxiety face. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. Today, we're speaking to Myrna Harris, the founder of Harris, Kramer, and Liston. Myrna has a career spanning 30 plus years as an administrator, special educator, teacher, and leader in a variety of settings, hospitals, residential treatment centers, and urban and suburban school districts. She's helped countless children, teens, and young adults find their way. She currently specializes in placing children, adolescents, and young adults who need more to succeed into specialized programs. And throughout her career, Myrna has helped countless children and families find the right programming. Myrna, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, what you do. I started the first 40 years of my life in public education. I started teaching in Spanish Harlem in the 70s and then went up to the Bronx. And the clients I worked with, the students I worked with, were always students who were fairly psychiatrically impaired. They were designated as special education students. Um, I moved up to Westchester later on in my career and became an administrator. And it still worked with students with special needs. So my whole life, I've always known that I wanted to work with vulnerable populations. That has been with me since college. Um, In 2008, I retired from public education and I started working as an independent educational consultant, specializing in working with children, adolescents, and young adults who have struggles, learning struggles, behavioral struggles, psychiatric struggles um, of all kinds. I started my own practice in 2013, I believe, and we basically travel all over the country when there's no pandemic. When there's no pandemic, our job is to visit all kinds of programs, to visit all kinds of resources, to get to know resources out there. And then when we come back to the office, our job is to get to know our clients, our students, our families. You know, specifically referring to um, anxiety, I'm wondering if you could sort of define what anxiety can look like in young adults and how it sort of impacts their learning. For me, it's always helped me to look at anxiety almost like a metaphor. And uh, the behaviors that we uh, exhibit are the tip of the iceberg. You know, so inattention, restlessness, agitation, aggression, uh, loss of appetite, all those things are behaviors. But underneath, we have to look at what thoughts and what behaviors are driving the anxiety, because often we miss anxiety. And anxiety is usually a persistent feeling of apprehension or dread, and it doesn't go away. And it interferes with how you learn and how you live your life. 
A lot of your work focuses on helping families in need. When a child or a teen is suffering from anxiety, would you say it's an issue that affects the entire family? So when anybody in a family suffers from a disabling anxiety disorder, it impacts the entire family. But when your child is suffering, parents instinctively want to help by either telling them there's nothing to worry about or by trying to fix the stressor and make it go away. I think we've learned uh, as parents, as educators, that neither of these strategies help. The first one feels pretty invalidating, and the second teaches our kids avoidance, and both of those lead to other behavioral concerns. That's a really good point. I think the tendency is, as a parent, to sort of want to fix things for a child who's sort of suffering. Every child's different. Our educational system often doesn't account for this. For children with anxiety, uh, what kind of issues does a lack of individualized learning cause? And uh, how do we mitigate that as parents and educators? First of all, kids with severe anxiety usually don't do well in competitive situations. And unfortunately, our school systems are set up for kids to compete and to be measured by a standard. And these standards are set, and then students with anxiety or any disability, you know, are by law provided with extra supports and accommodations to meet those standards and access their potential. An IEP or individualized educational plan or a 504 accommodation plan is usually created to help students more ably access their education and their learning in a more individualized way. And does that help them, you know, address those sort of uh, more competitive situations, be able to, to thrive in those competitive environments? I don't think there's a one size fits all answer for that. I think that we start trying to accommodate the environment to help students with anxiety and with learning differences learn. Sometimes the environment, the methodology, the instruction can't be adapted or isn't adapted in a way that allows kids to function. And then we see again all of those behaviors that are at the tip of the iceberg. That's when teachers see those behaviors. That's when parents begin to see those behaviors. But the hope and the intention is to keep trying to modify the environment and the instructional model. Quite a challenge. Is there an opportunity to provide more personalized plans um, with the push to uh, online learning? I'm wondering, you know, how those IOPs are going to function online, I guess. Yeah, that's a work in progress. I don't think we know how an IEP or a 504 or any of the supports that these kids need are going to be met in a technological environment. But I think we have to figure it out. Um, I, I absolutely think that is how the pandemic is going to transform the way we deliver instruction and the way we educate. And I do think that one of the ways that we can do that is by allowing kids using technology to perform and demonstrate what they know through project-based learning, through problem-based learning, rather than 
these standardized tests or the performance-based tests. So, for example, you're, you're, you have three kids at home. Uh, let's say the science lesson for today is to teach me Newton's laws of gravity. That might be a task that they have to do, but they're all going to do the research. They're going to all be, have access to the knowledge. But one of them might sing me a song to teach me Newton's law of gravity. Another one might make a visual poster. So I think that what we need to do is we need to look at the way we instruct and we have to look at the way that we assess. Really interesting. Differentiated instruction. I wonder if teachers are able to do that online on Zoom. I, I do think there are opportunities, but you know, I think there's a lot to be left to be discovered there. I think there's so much to be discovered. I think that we also have a paradigm in our mind that there's one teacher and there's 30 kids in front of us. Well, maybe that paradigm will change because of technology. You recently gave a webinar discussing the term failure to launch. You talked about how 30 to 50 years ago, most people reached adulthood and achieved independence at 18. Yet today, young people are presented with more financial, social, mental economic challenges that make it more difficult for them to find independence. Do you think this is a contributing factor to why uh, many students are suffering from anxiety? I think it's why so many parents suffer from anxiety, too. <laughs> I, I'm always hear, hearing from parents about whether or not their kids have launched. That's just such a hefty expectation mm. for young adults mm. right now who can't attend school, who are having trouble finding jobs, or think about it, even going on a date <laughs> is what they should not be doing right now, um, <laughs> dating and partying. But I think that there's a whole set of challenges and anxieties that our college-age kids, our 18 and over kids, are facing. Mm. And I think our challenge as educators and parents is going to be, how do we help them face those challenges? What can we do to help them face that anxiety that's in front of them? There's a lot of kids in that right around 18, you know, 18, 20, really just struggling to sort of figure it out. Um, and it can, I think it'd be awkward. And I think that you are right that I feel like kids have become more fragile and developmentally younger than perhaps the student of 20 or 30 years ago. I do think there are ways that the culture itself needs to change so that we can foster different characteristics in young adults. I think about what do we need to teach our kids? You know, what do we need to arm them with the tools to grow up? And it's not knowledge necessarily. Knowledge is out there. It's the experience of failure so that they can build resiliency. We need to arm them with, you know, age-appropriate levels of independence. It used to be you let your kids out in the street hmm. and let them go play. Hmm. We don't do that so much. Kids stay in and that feels like that's play. Hmm. Um, I think we need to teach kids that they're competent and we need to believe that they're competent and make them do some problem solving in different experiences. How can parents tell um, when their kids are suffering versus struggling? In other words, when should you actually jump in and when should you not? I actually believe that struggle is good. I think about when I babysit for my two-year-old grandson and 
I'm sitting with him as he's trying to do a puzzle and he cannot get that piece in. Uh, and he's help, help. Now I really want to help him, but I know that I have to let him struggle. So I let him struggle, you know, until he throws the piece. <laughs> when he throws the piece at me, I know he's suffering. He's had enough. <laughs> he's done. He's not going to grow anymore from the struggle. So we need to be able to recognize that kids need to struggle to build resilience and, and to have empathy. But the kids and families that come into my office, they're suffering. And the difference is that... Parents have recognized, parents have seen that the behaviors of anxiety, they've seen either kids shutting down, they've seen their kids avoiding, they've seen their kids not eating and isolating, they've seen acting out behaviors. All of those things are indicative to me that a kid is suffering, that a kid can't manage the thoughts, can't manage the feelings and needs more professional help. Drawing the line between struggling and suffering kids is pretty difficult because I think there's sort of a spectrum of anxiety that we all would sort of fall on. Where do you draw the line and say, this is, um, this is too crippling and needs some sort of intervention? I would say if the kids' grades are dropping, if the physical sort of manifestations of anxiety become so obvious that they're noteworthy to their friends, their peers, their teachers. If they notice that they're um, having an impact on their grades, on their friendships, on their performance in sports. But I think a lot of it goes sort of unseen. I think a lot of the kids who are suffering are suffering silently. So Mirna, generally speaking, what are some of the challenges with learning and anxiety that students face today? And uh, what are some of the ways that you treat them? Well, let me ask you this. How old are your kids, Alex? I get a baby that's one. I have a four-year-old and I have an eight-year-old, which let me tell you, there's a, there's a lot of orbits, as uh, my, my wife and I like to say. So let me ask you something. If we're talking about what are some of the challenges with learning and anxiety, especially now in this pandemic, what would you say your eight-year-old is struggling with the most? You know, she has trouble sort of understanding the situation. I mean, she'll walk around saying, I hate the pandemic. And (laughs) uh, (laughs) she didn't quite understand what's going on. I mean, I think they all have sort of various levels, you know, and so they act out, you know, because of their sort of changed environment. So if you ask me, you know, what presents the greatest challenge really triggers the most anxiety today for kids is they've lost their real connectedness. They've lost their ability to socialize. And how do we learn? We learn from socialization. And they also form secure attachments with their friends. Mm -hmm. And that feels safe. And also, there's no clubs for them. There's no sports for them. So I think that part of the challenge for us as parents is we're going to have to rethink ways for our kids to socialize in very, very safe ways. Absolutely. I don't think you can separate education from socialization. I think those two things are the same. So perhaps this is an impossible question to answer, but um, how can we sort of help them 
with that isolation? How can we support them in doing that? I'm not sure we know that just yet. I do think that this is an absolute learning experience for all of us. But I think one of the most important things that we have to do as caregivers, as parents, is be very attuned to our kids. Be attuned means really paying attention to what their behaviors are telling us, and that tells us what their needs are. And if we can pay attention to their behaviors and understand their needs, then hopefully we'll be creative enough to figure out ways to meet those needs. Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess you kind of take it as it unfolds. Flipping back a little bit to, you know, what it is that you do, you tend to focus on placing students into specialized, individualized programs. Can you talk about this specifically? What are sort of different programs that anxious learners can benefit from? I had a young man about age 13 who came into my office with his parents. And first thing I do is read all the testing, you know, and most of the clients I serve come in with testing um, because I'm not the first stop. You know, they have probably had an IEP. They've probably had a 504. They've probably had a psychiatrist. I'm pretty much the last stop. And so this 13-year-old came in and was suffering. He felt like he was totally unliked. He could not find friends. He could not find connection. His social communication was off. So the very first thing that I do is obviously I hear the story and I hear from the parents, what do you feel is going on for your child? What do you feel they need that they're not getting? And then I, I interview the child and I meet with them and I ask them what they're concerned about. And if they can't tell me what they're concerned about, then I ask them, so what do you think your parents are concerned about? And that usually gets them talking about their own worries and their own concerns and their own fears, as long as it's, they're not, it's not about them. They're not worried at all. And then I will ask permission to collaborate with a whole team of professionals. I will get the tutor's input. I will get the psychiatrist's input about what kind of pharmacological interventions have you used to help mitigate some of the, and it is anxiety. I mean, you might see a whole bunch of other behaviors. Again, you might see isolation and acting out, and he did manifest that. But underneath it all, there was uh, some, some developmental deficit, but there was anxiety was causing the behaviors. So if in fact that we can't modify the environment, the young man had been in two schools already and the schools, I speak to his teachers, the schools that he was in were very small, nurturing, private schools. He just didn't have the skill building. He did not have the ability to develop the skills. So he needed a more therapeutic milieu where he could grow where he could learn, where people could be more attuned and teach him in vivo the skills that he did not possess. And therapeutic schools or specialized learning schools are also much more safe environments for kids because there's a commonality of vulnerability. And so it's safer to express your feelings, it's safer to make mistakes. 
I imagine too, having peers there that are on a similar sort of level or struggling with similar things to you is very important to them as well. I mean, given how much they compare themselves to others. Absolutely. And then, you know, in terms of anxiety, the very typical case that walks through the door is a 17-year-old young woman who's always been straight A's and has never had an inch of learning problems ever and all of a sudden stops. Can't do the homework, can't go to school. It, it morphs. It morphs into not being able to go to school. So I'm curious to hear from you. I'm curious to hear if if you see a lot of that in your experiences. Uh, Tell me what you find helps a student like that. What sort of helps, I would say, is just having another voice. I'd say that, uh, you know, a mentor that acts as sort of a stabilizing point for them. And I would say, I guess, sort of life coaching. I guess I would say all of the framework that surrounds the actual education itself. What I hear you saying is that you literally build a structure around this very fragile being. The other thing that I might do is I found out that the trigger for her collapse was she got to see. What I suggested was, how about before we make a placement, it didn't call for a placement, how about you do some really intensive CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and you do some really intensive exposure response therapy and see if you can learn to tolerate the distress of not being perfect. Yeah, absolutely. It's exactly what we do with um, the Anxiety Institute is cognitive behavioral therapy. It works very well. Um, in my experience, the, the kid has to be brave enough and you have to, you know, coach them their ego, just finding the positive qualities about them and really, really harping on those. I would say some kids could do it. There are kids who are really, really uh, resistant to talk therapy that you can't get them through the door. And then those are the kids that I need to send to a program. Those are the kids who, if the parents have tried absolutely everything and they can't get past themselves, then I might send them to a wilderness program. Believe it or not, there are more and more therapeutic groups in the wilderness devoted to kids who are internalizers, who literally are acting in, and they can't talk about it, but in a model where you are learning hard skills, uh, like busting a fire, and you don't know how to do that, you're practicing vulnerability, you're practicing distress tolerance, you're learning how to ask for help. So sometimes that experiential model is what gives a young person that feeling of competence and that feeling of confidence. And that generalizes sometimes often to a classroom where they've practiced that distress tolerance, they've practiced that vulnerability, they've experienced it. The key here is making sure that educators and that the parents, the caregivers, that they stay attuned to what suffering looks like in their kid and 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 not just jump in when they're struggling. Thank you uh, very much, Mira. That was a really interesting conversation. Um, I, I love what I'm getting from these, um, even in just helping my own kids. Um, but uh, really appreciate your knowledge. And um, uh, thanks a lot for uh, talking with me today. Well, it was my pleasure, Alex. Thanks so much for inviting me. And, you know, I, I look forward to future conversations. 
For my conversation with Mirna, here are a few key takeaways. Mirna discussed some sort of strategies to deal with kids with anxiety and mentioned to uh, a few things that didn't work that I found interesting. When parents instinctively want to tell um, their kids that it's nothing or trying to make the stressor go away, neither of these strategies work. And I think parents can sort of attest to this. I knew a teacher once who, um, learning specialist actually at a school called King, who mentioned a lean in and lean out technique. So you sort of lean into that anxiety and say, oh my God, that must be really hard. I understand why you'd be afraid of the dark. It's pretty scary. I understand why you would need the closet to be closed in a certain way. But then you sort of lean out from that as well. I think, you know, kids with anxiety can sort of get carried away a little bit with those fears as they sort of spin out of control. She mentioned exposure therapy. I think that's really important. So exposure therapy is gradually building up a sort of tolerance to the point of worry. But the first step really is validation, right? Is, you know, that is something to be concerned about. This is something that we need to address. COVID has definitely taken away a lot of social circumstances. You know, our conversation focused on sort of the distinctions that it's drawn between sort of social education and just academic. You know, I think that's a huge concern for many parents. You know, certainly we worry about that. My daughter always has her nose stuck in a book. You know, we certainly don't worry about her reading level, but I mean, we do worry about, you know, how is she going to be able to operate in a group? You know, she's not having those experiences where she needs to figure out, well, if I feel differently from everyone else in the group, how do I treat that? Finding ways to create those social circumstances, I think, is really important. There's nothing more closely linked to success than your social emotional skills, as a lot of the research has shown. I definitely think that should be on the forefront of parents' minds. Thanks for listening to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that helps caregivers of anxious learners overcome obstacles to find academic success and build continuously happy lives. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. See you next time.